Good morning. My name is Andy. I am an elder here at North Shore Church. And this morning I get the privilege of leading us first through scripture and then in prayer. This morning's reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will... Make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Father in heaven, creator of life, by your will this earth exists and is held together. Your power cannot be imagined. We, as we are bound to this world in these bodies, cannot even begin to know you as you are. Your love, the way you paid for our sins, your goodness, your holiness. You are truth without a shred of any sin. Eternally present, not bound by time as we are. Your greatness we can only glimpse with our imaginations. And you have called us to yourself into a relationship to be sons and daughters of yours. You have sent the Holy Spirit to help us. We cannot ask for more. Thank you, Lord. You pour out grace on each of us. We can never repay your kindness. Thank you. Lord, as sons and daughters, we ask from you to forgive us our sins. Draw us, Lord, nearer to you. Give us, Lord, tender hearts open to the Holy Spirit's leading. Give us understanding of your word, the scripture. And by reading your holy word, we get to know you. We are drawn nearer to you. We are empowered and we are equipped to be the church. Lord, make this body of believers strong and bold and help us to share the gospel. Lord, strengthen and heal those here in our midst who are in need. We think of Joe Wells and Sue Mortensen's mom, Carol, and Mary Balke, and Jeff Carhoon. We ask for healing of their bodies. We also pray for peace and comfort for Pam Bonner's family and for Ken Copsey's sister and their, Patty and their family. We ask for you comfort them in their losses. We pray for guidance for Brenda Levin's son, Nick, and also for Heather Oglesby. Lord, please make it clear for them when decisions are to be made. And now we pray for today's message, Lord. Keep distractions away. Lord, empower Duncan to bring your message to us today. Give him insight into scripture and an open heart to be led by your Holy Spirit. Lord, bless this time that we have in your word in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week we hope to conclude our look in Acts chapter 2 at this first sermon of the church, Peter's sermon here in chapter 2. We want to look today specifically, not so much at the sermon, but at the response to the sermon from the Jews who were listening on this day of Pentecost. You recall that these Jews had converged on the apostles out of their curiosity as they witnessed these miraculous signs that accompanied the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter begins his sermon, as Andy just read, by explaining that the people had seen the long-promised outpouring of God's Spirit on his people, and he supports that claim by quoting from the prophet Joel in chapter 2. 
He then spends the next several verses just preaching Jesus to these Jews, many of whom were in Jerusalem for this Jewish festival called Pentecost. Peter stresses in his words about Jesus that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and that they share in the guilt of his murder when the Jews, using the Roman officials, had crucified him. So he's right in their face on this point. Last week we saw that Peter quotes David from two Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, to prove that Jesus did indeed raise from the dead, and that this was part of God's plan, as David, who was a prophet as well as a king, had predicted. So he cites David from Psalm 110 to reinforce that Jesus was both the Jewish Messiah, but also their Lord. He concludes the section and that message by using his Holy Spirit-empowered scalpel to expose their sin. As he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Miraculously, the Jews believed these claims that Peter makes here about who Jesus is and what he, they had done to him. We saw last week that the only way you believe someone's claims that totally dismantles your previous belief system and reconstructs a brand new belief system, the only way you come to believe that you were so badly mistaken about Jesus that you did indeed kill the long-awaited Messiah is if the Holy Spirit convinces you that you have been wrong and now are hearing the truth. You don't, in a span of just several minutes, move from believing that Jesus of Nazareth was a criminal who, because of his crucifixion, was under the curse of God, you don't move from that understanding of Jesus to believing that he is your resurrected and reigning from heaven Messiah and Lord. You don't experience that kind of intellectual and spiritual whipsaw in your thinking apart from the work of the grace of God. Luke records their precise response to these claims that they'd killed their Lord in Christ in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So the Holy Spirit, through Peter's bold and stinging accusations here, had delivered a deep heart wound to these Jews, and they cry out in stunned agony. Not only to Peter, but to all the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So these Jews, who now realize that they're guilty of killing the apostles' leader and teacher, now petitioned these same men for a solution to their huge problem. In light of the condemnation of God that they now know rests on them, they basically ask, well, then what now? Is there anything we can do to escape God's judgment? That is an absolutely great place to be if you want to be saved. Right there. And in response, Peter gives this incredibly compressed response that contains 
so much of the New Testament theology of salvation in one verse. He says in verse 38, And Peter said to him, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It would be hard to overstate how much theology Peter crams into that one statement. This text forces us to think theologically, so fasten your seatbelts. The first command, and it is a command from Peter, is that these people must repent. Now, where did he learn that? Well, he learned it from the same place he learned everything else. He learned it from Jesus. In Luke's gospel, Jesus told the apostles in some of his final words on earth, in verse 47, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So this is no accident that he begins with repentance. That's where Jesus begins. In calling these Jews to repent, Peter's following not only the example of Jesus, he's also following the example of John the Baptist. The main message of John the Baptist, we all know, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's in Matthew chapter 3, but a chapter later when Jesus comes on the scene, in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John and Jesus, before the resurrection and anticipation of the kingdom coming, they preach repent. Now that the kingdom has come, or at least has been inaugurated, Peter's preaching the same message, repent. To repent here means to turn away from their life of rebellion against God and his Messiah and instead turn to Jesus. So Peter's telling them to turn away from rejecting Christ and receive him as their promised Messiah, as their risen and exalted Lord. But in light of the social context they're living in, they live among people who, like them, killed Jesus Peter also tells them something more about what repentance means in their situation. In verse 40, he says, save yourself from this crooked generation. That means he's also in some sense calling these Jews to turn away from this current generation of Jews who'd rejected Jesus. So this call to repent to these Jews was also a call to turn away from a Judaism that was so dead that not only did they not recognize their long-awaited Messiah when he came, they killed him. Now that God had revealed the truth to these Jews about Jesus and the gross deception that they'd been under, they must turn away from this generation of Jews who'd shared in this wicked deception. It was no accident that, as we'll see next week, these believers became part of a new community. They began to gather together as a group. It wasn't a violent or bitter separation from the Jews. It's not as if this was a complete exile from Judaism. It was just that these people shared something so unique and so special with these other Jews who'd followed Jesus. That separated them. They understood that they were still children of Abraham but it wasn't just a matter of having Abraham's genetic material anymore. They also have a new spiritual status with God as his spirit-filled new covenant people. And that makes a separation. 
The point is that repentance for these Jews meant a radical separation from this fallen world, and it should be that for all new converts. Sadly today, I think many of us realize this within evangelicalism, repentance is just too often listed as optional. As we said last week, salvation is often seen as simply getting your ticket to heaven punched. It means somehow adding Jesus to your life, maybe as insurance from hell, or simply praying a prayer. In those increasingly rare instances where repentance is mentioned in evangelism today, it's not very well explained. Some avoid it simply because they're carnal, they don't want that kind of religion, or maybe they're ignorant, they don't see it as crucial. Others intentionally omit the need to repent because they wrongly, they mistakenly fear that calling someone to repent of their sins in order to be saved is adding a work requirement to salvation. This initial repentance, this turning away from this fallen world to Jesus, when a person is converted, is a commitment that we make when we understand the radical nature of what it is to be a Christian. But it's not a work added to salvation because repentance ultimately is part of God's saving work in a person's life. The power to turn away from sin and change our lives could never rest within us. Though we commit to turn away from our sins, we do so as an act of faith, knowing that genuine repentance, it's a gift of God. We make the commitment, but God makes the change. Peter and the apostles say this thing to the Jewish leaders later on in Acts chapter 5. It says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So he gives One, repentance, and he gives two, forgiveness of sins. The fact that repentance and forgiveness of sins are grouped together here as gifts of God means that a sinner can no more repent of their sins on their own than they can forgive their own sins. Both are gifts of God. But just as a sinner must acknowledge their need for forgiveness, so sinners must also acknowledge the fact that they're living in rebellion to God and commit to obeying his will by God's grace. J.I. Packer says it really well about repentance. He says, repentance, the repentance that Christ requires of his people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit on the claims which he may make on their lives. Let me repeat that. The repentance that Christ requires of his people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit on the claims which he may make on on their lives. Repentance is an acknowledgement that when you controlled your life, you had totally messed it up. All you did was completely miss the purpose of your life. That's all you did. Just completely, totally, utterly miss the purpose of your life. Why God put you here to live for his glory. And so repentance is simply handing over control of your life to God, who purchased it, by the way, with the blood of his Son, to do with what he wants, to accomplish his purpose for his glory. This transfer of control, it may seem very humbling to us, but it should not feel threatening to us, because God is good. 
He's our father. He's kind. He loves his children. I mean, don't we want him at the wheel of our life? He's only going to do what will bring us ultimate joy. That's all. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin in the sense that the faith that brings you into relationship with Jesus also causes you to repent. If you believe in Jesus but haven't repented, then the faith that you have is not saving faith. Because the same faith that joins you to Christ, the faith that saves you, also causes you to repent. A non-repentant faith is what James calls dead faith. It can't save anybody because it doesn't produce good works that flow from repentance. Make no mistake, calling people to repentance is not salvation by works. Salvation by works says that we are saved by faith plus works. Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Repentance is an expression of faith not works. We see this call to repent many times in the book of Acts. In addition to chapter 5, where he talks about it as a gift, we also see it in chapter 3. Peter says to another group of Jews, verse 19, repent, therefore, and turn back, assumedly turn back to God, that, or so that, your sins may be blotted out. So just like in chapter 2, the forgiveness of sins is conditioned on repenting of your sin. You repent so that your sins may be blotted out. And the reason he can say that is because repentance is from faith. No repentance, no faith. No faith, no blotting out of sins. Later in Acts chapter 17, Peter's preaching to the intellectual elite in Athens. And he says to these people in verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is not optional. This call to repentance is, however, not given every time the gospel is preached in Acts. And that's doubtless because in certain cases their repentance is assumed. A great example of that is in Acts chapter 16, where we see the Philippian jailer. You recall there's this earthquake... The doors of the prison fly open, and the prisoners, including Paul and Silas, the Roman jailer assumes to have now escaped, and he's scared to death, and beginning, he wants to kill himself because of that. And so beginning in verse 28, we read, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. There's no call for repentance here. Does that mean we have a different gospel? Of course not. This man was trembling with fear. And he's asking how to be saved as he falls down before two of the prisoners that he'd been guarding. Okay, Peter discerns that his heart is clearly repentant. He knew he was a total mess. And this Roman soldier is crying out, how do I get to be saved? In Acts chapter 10, we see the Gentiles who are converted, but they invite Peter to come and preach the gospel to them. And they receive the Holy Spirit before Peter's even finished preaching. Clearly, God saw that there was no need of them to be called to repent. 
They knew they were on the wrong track, and they requested Peter to come and preach the gospel to them. Peter commands these people, the Gentiles in chapter 10, to be baptized. And these Gentiles did that. And as they were doing that, they were identifying themselves not only with Jesus, but they were also identifying themselves with a group that at the time was made up only of Jews. These people were repentant. In our own evangelism, if we come across someone who has totally messed up their life and out of anguish, they give whatever their version of to you is, what must I do to be saved? That's probably not a person that needs to hear a great deal about repentance. They're almost certainly aware that they've messed things up, that they're on the wrong track, and they need Jesus to turn their life around. But at other times in our life, we'll need to make sure that they understand Christianity is not a ticket to heaven. It's not a religious club. It's a radical, God-enabled reorientation of your life around Jesus Christ. Genuinely trusting in Christ, which always includes repentance, brings about that kind of reorientation. This command to repent is, however, only one part of the command. The other half of the command from Peter in verse 38 and this is a command, not a suggestion, is be baptized, every one of you. Now, you might wonder what frame of reference these Jews had for something like baptism. Well, baptism was not a new experience for Jews. John the Baptist, of course, baptized Jews. Jesus' disciples also baptized Jews. And the Jews regularly practiced immersion in water, in one of their ceremonial pools, like the Pool of Siloam or the Pool of Bethesda or wherever, for the purpose of purification from ceremonial impurities under the law. Things like childbirth and certain skin diseases and contact with dead bodies made you ceremonially unclean. Well, you weren't allowed to participate in temple worship if you weren't restored to a state of ceremonial cleanliness, and that always involved immersion in water. So this purification was not essentially new to these people. But this purification that Peter commands was not for the purpose of preparing you for temple worship. It was immersion in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, baptize in the name of Jesus. The question that might raise for you is the Great Commission tells people, to be baptized in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's done because all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. The Father elects people. The Father has planned redemption. The Son did the redemptive work on the cross, and the Spirit applies the redemption of Jesus to our lives by making us spiritually alive and uniting us to Christ. So why here just in the name of Jesus. Well, Peter baptizes here in Jesus' name, almost certainly because his message has been all about Jesus. Peter's testimony about Jesus provides the context for what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus. To be baptized in Jesus' name, as we've seen already by implication, means that you are publicly acknowledging that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and Savior, the crucified, risen, and exalted Lord who rules from God's right hand. That's what Peter has said about Jesus. By obeying 
Peter's command to undergo what they all understood to be purification of some sort meant that when Peter told them to be baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins, they were saying, forgiveness of sins is found only in Jesus. One question that this text and a few others in the New Testament raise is the relationship between baptism and salvation. Yes, we're going there. (laughs) Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, now if this were the only verse in the New Testament about baptism, it would be perfectly reasonable to assume that baptism is necessary and that baptism in some way brings about the forgiveness of sins. If this were it, it's not it. We know that can't be true because of the verse we already quoted from Romans chapter 3. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. As we saw with repentance, there's nothing you can do to be saved. Faith alone justifies. You and your forgiveness of sins is part of justification. And faith does that. Repentance and baptism are expressions of faith. Romans 4, 5 states the same truth, only to put it negatively. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Later in chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So baptism cannot justify you before God. Faith alone does that, as so many have observed. The thief on the cross was never baptized. We get some help in putting all of this together by looking in Acts 22:16, where Paul is speaking to Jews in Jerusalem. And he says to these Jews, And now, what, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name again. There's the connection between baptism and washing away sin. But Paul explains the relationship here with this phrase, calling on his name. Baptism is a symbolic, acted-out way of outwardly expressing you calling on the name of the Lord in faith. He explains that. It's like a wedding ring. The ring doesn't marry you. The wedding vows do that. The ring is an outward symbol of the covenant you made with your spouse. Likewise, the water in baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Only the blood of Jesus does that. This also explains a very difficult text on baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says in verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, Peter makes the connection between baptism and salvation. And at first, it appears to be a causal connection, as if baptism in some way caused salvation. But he immediately explains himself that it is not a causal connection because he's working to not be misunderstood here. He says that baptism cleanses a person not as water removes dirt from the body, 
The water in baptism does not cleanse from our souls our sin in the same way that water cleanses dirt from our bodies. That's what his point is. No, Peter says it cleanses as an appeal. As an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. He's saying that the outward act of baptism signals or signifies or symbolically portrays an appeal to God that comes from the heart. By faith. Baptism is an expression of faith that looks to God through Jesus to remove the guilt from our conscience. It's our faith by grace that saves us by joining us to Christ. This is important. This isn't theological trivia because there are many people within Christendom that don't believe this. They believe that baptism does have a saving effect and that, whether they intend it or not, undermines the gospel which is by grace. As we say when we do a baptismal service, baptism, like the Lord's Supper, is a symbolic portrayal or an acting out of the gospel. In baptism, you're acting out a burial as you were buried under water. And you're doing that to symbolize that you in your salvation were united in the death and burial of Christ. You're then raised up out of the water to symbolically picture that you have with Christ been raised out of death into life through the saving work, and you've been cleansed of your sin. The water does nothing. It's a symbol. It's a wedding ring. Baptism reminds us of what we've been united into, the death and resurrection of Christ and our conversion. The change of heart indicated by repenting of our sins and embracing Christ as our Messiah also results in what Peter promises in the last part of 38. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. These Jews, as we said, were initially drawn to these apostles because they'd witnessed the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter has explained, this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made through the prophet Joel in the last days. Peter is saying here that if these Jews believe on Jesus as their risen Messiah and give evidence of their faith through repentance and baptism, the Spirit will indwell them and they'll become members of this new covenant people. And the law of God is now written on their hearts that means they will increasingly be inclined to obey God and not disobey God. The additional comment in verse 39 is that for you and for your children. Now that's important. That's not a throwaway line. It's become, like many of these phrases, a point of contention in the church because the phrase for you and for your children is held by many to be an embracing or an endorsement of infant Baptism. The promise is for you and for your children. Therefore, you can baptize babies. This church doesn't hold infant baptism. That's not a good support for it. There are many reasons for this. Apart from the text, uh, there's never, not once in all the New Testament, any explicit instances of a baby being baptized. You would think that would be in there. It's not. But beyond that, here in verse 39, it says this promise is not only for you, but for your children also, for all who are far off, everyone 
whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, those who are far off are almost certainly the Gentiles, who were alienated from the covenant and were not part of the people of God. It would seem to be a stretch that Peter's talking about infant baptism here. It's not anywhere mentioned here. It's far more likely in light of the context that he includes many other people receiving the Spirit. Peter is promising the Holy Spirit to your children in the sense that the succeeding generations are going to follow Christ. This new covenant is going to endure throughout time. It's not just for you. It's for your children. It's for your followers. It's for those who will succeed you. This promise will be given, it says, to everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Okay, we see this all over the place in Acts. You see a uh, straightforward giving of the gospel and a challenge and people need to do this and do that and then at the end there's this tacked on and all of those were saved who were appointed to eternal life <laughs> Acts 13 and here it's this promise will be given to everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself okay so don't miss the emphasis on the sovereign role of God in salvation here who will be saved who will receive the promises Peter says everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself now why does Peter include this as we see so often in Scripture the authors seek to clarify that the ultimate cause of salvation is the sovereign will of God not the autonomous self-reliant will of the sinner God's calling of sinners to himself is the same calling that Paul speaks of in Romans 8.30. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If God predestines you, he calls you to himself by the preaching of the gospel. And this calling from God never fails, because if he calls you, he will also justify you, and he will glorify you. No one slips through those cracks. We see this same supernatural calling of sinners in 1 Peter 2.9. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A sinner comes out of darkness into light. Why? For one decisive reason. God supernaturally calls him or her out of the darkness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If God doesn't effectively call you through the gospel, you cannot be saved. Jesus says the same thing. He just uses different wording in John 6.44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The word means to drag and I will raise him up on the last day. Salvation is a miracle of God calling or drawing sinners into his kingdom through the message of the gospel. This is not an autonomous, self-determining decision of a spiritually dead sinner. It's a supernaturally calling from God to new life out of death. Luke adds this additional comment in verse 41. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were out of that day about 3,000 souls. So baptizing 3,000 people, that would, have, that would have created quite a commotion when they were baptized in one of these large immersion pools that were around the Temple Mount. So 
The point is, not a private event, and there's no such thing as a private baptism. All baptisms are by nature public in nature. The inclusion by Luke of the number of people who were baptized is a bit unusual. There's another number, only one other in the book of Acts. In chapter 4, he says, by this time, several months later, there was about 5,000. Aside from those two numbers cited, you won't find any statistical data of the number of new converts anywhere in the New Testament. Paul never cites any numbers, and he is the evangelist church planter par excellence in the New Testament. These numbers here in Acts are probably Luke's way of highlighting the fact this was an unmistakable manifest, powerful work of God, and it wasn't done in a corner. This was a significant number of people who God calls to himself through the gospel message. The closing or the application is pretty self-evident because all Luke is really doing here is he's revealing to us the proper response to the gospel. And so the application is, have you properly responded to the gospel? Every believer's salvation is unique in its context, but there are some basic experiences that all of us have in common. Some believers can't remember when they were saved. That's certainly possible, especially if you were very young. But in order to be saved, you must have believed in Jesus as your Savior and expressed your faith in repentance. Again, a six-year-old's repentance is going to look very different than a 26-year-old's repentance. But there needs to be repentance either way, a turning away from sin and a turning God. Did you do that? Did you turn to God? Or were you just taking out some fire insurance with no sense of needing to turn, turn away from your sin? This is one reason why... There are people in any evangelical church who mentally assent to the gospel. They believe it. Makes sense to them. Substitution, me for him, him for me. Got it. But they've never experienced the new birth. They've never been supernaturally saved. And so they find themselves wondering things like, you know, I just don't seem to be quite as thrilled that I am forgiven of my sin. I'm not as excited about knowing Jesus as these other people are. One reason for that is they prayed a prayer. They never repented of their sin. Have you done that? If you haven't done that, you need to do that today. That's not an option. Also, though it is not necessary to be saved, I hope you have seen that baptism is really important as an expression of faith and obedience. If you've not been baptized as a believer, this text is calling you to do that in obedience to the Great Commission. May God grant us the grace to respond in obedience to the gospel for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, there's lots here, lots of material, lots of theology. God, the New Testament theology of salvation is glorious and it's wonderful, but sometimes it's sometimes hard to put it all together. And so, God, I just pray that you would give us all clarity on this. Father, if there's anyone here today who is under the impression that they're born again when they're not, I just pray you would reveal that, God. That's what you revealed to these Jews here, that they were not right with you and that they'd been horribly deceived. And, God, if there's anybody in this room that's in that category, I pray that your spirit would open their eyes as well. Father, help us all to be obedient to you as we respond to the gospel, and as we boldly live it and give it.
for Jesus' sake. Amen.